0: Danny gave me some good advice this morning before I got up here and he said, don't be boring. So I've never been accused of being boring before and maybe it's just because you're too nice. But if I am boring this morning, just don't tell me. (laughs) As we get started this morning, I want to use an illustration uh, to kind of get our thoughts pointed in the right direction. I want you to go back to the year 1990 and I want you to imagine that you're where you're the age you are now, and you have a you've saved and you've saved and you've saved. And you've saved up a hundred thousand dollars. And that hundred thousand dollars has just it's cost you so much, so much time, so much effort, um, so much sacrifice, but you've got a hundred thousand dollars and you go to your investor, you say, I want to save this, I want to put this back, and I want to invest it so that hopefully it'll grow. And every month. You get one of these back, you get a return. And every, every year, you're getting 10% on that. Even in terrible years, terrible financial years, you're getting 10%. And so that money just keeps growing and growing and growing. And pretty soon that $100,000 that you invested has become $200,000. And then 10 years down the road, it's become $300,000. 17 years down the road, so in 2007, it's now worth $700,000. Your $100,000 that you worked so hard for has now become $700,000. And and you you feel wealthy. You feel good about that. Life's going good. But then this happens. You read this article. Top broker accused of $50 billion fraud. This article comes out. And you go to get your money out, your your $700,000 that you've been seeing on these returns, and guess what? You find out it was a fraud. You were part of that Ponzi scheme. And you find out that the person who's been investing your money is Bernie Madoff. And it was all a fraud. Really, you've got zero dollars in that account. There was never a single investment made. That money was imaginary. That, That hope, that promise was imaginary. All the confidence that you placed in this investment was imaginary. It was gone. Ultimately, you're broke. You've got nothing. Essentially, that's where we're at with Obadiah this morning. Obadiah is about a prophet who is writing uh, to the Edomites. It's really one of the only books that we read where God is prophesying about someone other than his people, the Israelites. He's actually prophesying about the Edomites. We're going to learn about uh, the Edomites, who they were, and what we can learn from them. These people, the Edomites, they thought that they were powerful. They thought they were strong. They thought they were something. They thought they were safe where they were. Um, They thought no one could touch them. They didn't think they could be destroyed by anywhere, by anyone. And with this, God is going to send his, I can't stand there. With this, God is going to send his prophet to tell them, you're about to be destroyed. You've got something coming. You better watch out. And you've probably seen Edom, you've probably heard about Edom um, as you read through your Old Testament. Edom has shared a border down here at the bottom of this chart, um, just south of the kingdom of Judah. You've got Israel up up top, you've got Judah, where Jerusalem is, and just to the south of that, sharing that border, is where this kingdom of Edom is. The Edomites live there. And they aren't just neighbors, but there's there's a tremendous back history to who the people of Edom were. And so we go back to about 2000 B.C., to the time of Abraham, about 1,500 years before the book of Obadiah is actually written uh, to learn about who, who the Edomites were. And so you remember the, the genealogy here. Abraham and Sarah, they have Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah, they have Jacob, and they have Esau, two sons. And I know I'm standing right in everybody's way to see this. Um, Esau is the firstborn. Firstborn meaning they have the birthright. Um, they get the blessing. Everything that was uh, Isaac's is going to become Esau's. Uh, Jacob is the secondborn. He's the second child. The second child, though, has no right to that birthright. He has, there's no blessing giving, given to the second, second child. And that's just how lineage worked. That's just how ancestry worked back then. The firstborn was the important child. And if you go and read Genesis chapter 5 and 27... Uh, you see the history of, of what happened there and why there's such bad blood between Jacob and Esau. And you remember the whole story about the, the birthright, and Jacob goes uh, and he steals the birthright from, Ed, from from Esau. And Esau hates him for that. It says in verse 20, chapter 27, verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And this war started essentially over bread and stew, as, as Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And this, this war went on for generations and generations, and lasted for almost 2,000 years, as we get up to the time of when Obadiah is being written. And if we keep reading in the Old Testament, we find that Jacob, of course, becomes Israel, Israel the father of the Israelites, Esau, who was the natural firstborn, becomes Edom, and he's the father of the Edomites. And so as you go through your Old Testament and you see that, that's what those are talking about. That's where the history came from. But this hatred continues on past Jacob and Esau here, and it continues on for generations. The Israelites, they ultimately become enslaved there in Egypt, um, and they're stuck there for roughly 500 years. And then uh, Edom, they go over... And pretty soon after this story between Jacob and Esau, they go over and they inhabit that, that land of the Edomites there, and they stick it out there for 500 years while the Israelites are, are captured there in Egypt. And so 500 years later, you remember the story of Moses. As Moses is leading the people out of Egypt uh, to the promised land, they have 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Um, they're trying to get to this promised land that God has promised to them, uh, but they wander in the wilderness here. And they start out here, over here in Egypt, and they wander around, um, trying to get up to this northeastern side of the map there. And they're, I think, 30, 32 years into, the visit, into their journey and their travels at this point. And they get to the, this this kingdom of Edom, and they're trying to get across this border. And they're just trying to get up into the area of, the, of Moab, Moab there. And they go to the king there, and they say, Can we please go through your land? It's going to save years and years of suffering. Um, They've got hundreds of thousands of people that are traveling with them, that Moses is leading through the desert here. And it's going to save them all kinds of time and heartache and suffering if they can just make it up uh, to to Moab um, without having to go around here. So they go to the king there, um, and they talk to the king of Edom and They say, "Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink high water or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory." But Edom said to him, "You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you." And the people of Israel said to him, "We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more." But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. So even though it's going to save us years and suffering and all these women and children and livestock that we have with us, even though it's going to make life so much easier on them, they still wouldn't let them pass through their land. So that same tension that we saw between Jacob and Esau, how Esau hated Jacob for stealing that birthright from him, we still see it 500 years later. These descendants hated each other. And so ultimately what happens is, is Israel has to go up and down and around, and it takes many more years for them to do that. Um, very difficult on them just because of this hatred between these two cultures. And this hatred continues for another thousand years. Pretty much every king that you, that you read about, starting with uh, King Solomon and on down through the kings, through Hezekiah and even further, they have some type of dealing with the Edomites. And most of that is is hostile dealings. They hated each other, um, even a thousand years down the the line. Then we get to Assyria. Assyria started taking over in about 800 BC, and they start this southwestern expansion and trying to take over Judah. And essentially, um, Assyria takes over the the land of Edom as well. They become a vassal state. Um, Edom does, and basically, they they're independent of them. They get to make their own decisions apart from Assyria, but they're still under Assyrian rule overall. Um, That's what you call a vassal state. And with that, um, the the, uh, Edomites continue to make life really hard for the people here um, in Judah. And then we fast forward several hundred more years to when Babylon takes over. Babylon takes over um, from Assyria, starts to, again, move southward toward Judah, and actually takes over Judah. And destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. And the Bible records this in Psalms 137, verse 7. He says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. And so this temple that that was the most important thing. Jerusalem, uh, the Jerusalem was one of the most important. It's the holy city. And then inside Jerusalem, you've got the temple, one of the most prized possessions by the Israelites. And the Edomites are saying, lay it bare. Lay it bare to its foundations. So that hatred that we saw with Jacob and Esau, and then we see uh, 500 years later, as they're traveling through the desert, it's still there as we come uh, 1,000 years down the line. The Edomites are are saying, take it down. Destroy it. They hated these people with a passion. That's where we get to uh, for our setting for Obadiah. Two cultures that hated each other. Ultimately, Israel was the people of God. And Edom hated the, the people of God. They had feud. And so ultimately, uh, Edom was the enemy of God because of this. And it, it, for Obadiah, it's really difficult to determine a specific time period. Um, but really, it doesn't matter. The, the, the message is still the same. The wicked are going to be punished. And that's the overall meaning as we go through Obadiah here, that's, that's what's gonna, what we're going to find out. So let's read the first two verses. It says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And so God doesn't waste any time. Obadiah reports this to, to Edom, and out, out of the gate he declares war. On the Edomites here. God declares war. And this kind of made me think about a declaration of war. And the U.S. has declared war 11 different times. The last time being in World War II. And during wartime, your efforts are solely focused on destroying the enemy. You forget about everything else. And the the only thing you can think about is war against whoever you're going to war against. And this is essentially what happened here um, with Obadiah. When God declares war, that's, everything was focused um, on that war. Let's look at the past enemies of God and, and see what happened to them. And, and one example of that is in Second Chronicles 20. It says, "After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, together with some of the Muonites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. The moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moabites and the inhabitants of Mount Seir, which are the Edomites. Uh, who came to fight against Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, uh, they helped destroy each other. And so this wouldn't have been that long ago. Maybe a few hundred years ago this happened, and this, this story would be known. This story would have been told to all these different uh, generations uh, up until the point where, we get where we're at in Obadiah. And this is what happens when God declares war on a nation. It's complete annihilation, complete destruction. When God says something, he means it. And it would have been a scary thing for sure uh, to hear something like this from Obadiah about your, about your nation. In verse 2, um, at the end of that declaration of war... God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. That word small, when you look up up the Hebrew for it, it's insignificant. Not only are you you small in number, but you're insignificant. You just don't matter. And to the Edomites who were so overcome with pride, that would have really hurt them to know that they were going to be nothing. People weren't going to know who they were. They were going to be insignificant. That was one of the worst things uh, that could have happened to these people. And that's why he says what he does in verse 3 to these people who were so full of pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say who stay in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though you nest, your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And so their, their lofty dwelling that it's referring to is in the mountains. They they were a mountainous people. They were very well protected. Um, Here's a few pictures as you travel up into Mount Seir, um, the land of the former Edomites. Um, You can go here now and and, and travel around and and look at this. This is known as Petra now. Um, But if you're an enemy and you're trying to get up to to the capital of this kingdom, you'd have to funnel through these formations here. And, And all along, there's people up above that would be able to attack you. And it was a very well-defensed city. And once you trekked to the top of that, if you were able to get through uh, these channeling systems in the mountain, um, this is what you'd find. And if you've seen Indiana Jones and the last crusade, uh, this is where it was filmed, was at the front of Petra. Um, This is the former land of the Edomites. And we're going to find out later that the tribe who took over, the the Nabateans, who took over after the Edomites, they were the ones who carved all this in. But this is the land uh, that the Edomites had and, and dwelled in. But it's very mountainous, very well protected, and they knew that. They knew that they were well protected, protected, and they were very prideful about that. But in verse 3 and 4, God says, I'm going to bring you down. You've, you've been in that lofty dwelling like an eagle, but I'm going to bring you down. You're going to be destroyed. And he's going to use their allies to do it, we find out in verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. He's saying, watch your back. These people you've trusted in, the friends that you have, the allies that you've had, the people that you eat with and trust in, you better watch your back because they're going to be the ones that ultimately turn against you and and destroy you. And this kind of made me think a little bit about Christ. And Judas, right before, um, he was betray- before Christ was betrayed, he eats with Christ. And then he's the one who ultimately is the one who uh, turns him in and sets a trap for him. And that's essentially what's happening here. God tells the Edomites here, though, you can't trust anyone. You better watch your back. And that's going to give fear to them um, as they don't know who they can trust. We keep going in verses 8 and 9. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? And understanding out of the, out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. And and Temen is just a city there in uh, in the land of the Edomites. Um, but this is a really scary prophecy to see and and to hear for sure uh, from this prophet of God. And I'm sure that the whole time this is being prophesied to the people of Edom, why is this happening? What is going on that God has set his face against us? What what did we do? Um, Why does God have it out for us so much? And in verse 10, he answers that. He says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On that day you stood aloof. On On that day strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. They'd done violence. They carried off their money. They gloated. They rejoiced over their injustice that was happening to them. And God's saying, because you hated my people, because you took advantage of my people, because you stole, that's why I have it out for you. That's why you're going to be destroyed. And this would scare the Edomites. This would really bring fear and terror to the Edomites. On the other hand, though, this is going to be a great comfort to the people of God. The people who belong to God, They see that God is going to protect them and deliver them. And then in verse 15, uh, we get a pivot verse. And we see the whole time, um, verses 1 through 14, he's been talking about specifically Edom and and the prophecy against Edom. And then in verse 15, he widens his gaze, uh, talking about more generalized people. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. And so as you read this, you get this sense of justice. As you've done, it's going to be done to you. No matter who you are, if you've done evil, evil's going to be done to you. If you've used and abused God's people, you're about to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped out. And then in verse 17 and 18, he says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of God shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. There's going to be people who escape judgment, but there's also going to be people that experience judgment and they're destroyed and aren't delivered. The ones who survive are going to do so. They're going to survive because of God. The ones who are destroyed, on the other hand, they're going to be destroyed by the same God um, for their evil doings. And so he concludes, we're not going to finish the chapter, but in verse 19 through 21, he concludes, and he basically says what countries and what inhabitants are going to Uh, dwell in what lands going forth after this and so that's all we have about Obadiah it's just one chapter um, but a lot of good information there so what does that mean for us and I think it boils down to one thing the person the person reading Obadiah can experience one of two things either you have tremendous pain or you have tremendous promise tremendous comfort If you're following God, if you're doing what God says, if you're a child of God, you're going to experience tremendous comfort. But if you're going against Him and you're you're causing harm to His people and suffering for His people and you're not doing what He says and you're going against Him, you're you're going to experience tremendous pain. Tremendous comfort because you know you're being saved or tremendous pain because you know you're going to be destroyed. And I think the same language... Is experienced in First Peter chapter 3, and that's where I want to spend the rest of our, our sermon this morning. Peter is writing to a, a group of Christians who, is, who are experiencing hostility. People hated Christianity, people hated what it stood for and the restrictions that it put on people, and people did not want to be a part of that. And so they, they spoke out against it, and Peter calls the people there that he's writing to in First Peter chapter 3 to be different. And we, we, we've read this a lot, but I want to go back and I want to read through a couple verses there. Peter writes, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That sounds a lot like Obadiah. To me. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Those who do evil and are evil against God's people, they're going to face destruction. They're going to face wrath. They're going to face punishment, just like the Edomites did. And then after this, in verse 13, Peter goes on to tell the Christians, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so Peter gives perspective to these people. So there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of evil that people are doing to you, saying about you. Things are happening, but you're blessed when you suffer. You're blessed when you suffer. And then in verse 15, the reason why? Because you have hope. You're experiencing terrible suffering, terrible pain, but you do so because you have hope. And they're blessed because they have hope. And I got to thinking about it. The entire Bible is about hope. The book of Obadiah is about hope. Those who have hope and those who don't have hope. The, the people of Edom, they didn't have any hope. They had so much pride and arrogance in their possessions and in their, their dwelling where they lived They didn't have any true hope. The people of God, because of their trust in God and knowing that he was going to deliver them, they have true hope. They needed to understand that, the Edomites needed to understand that they weren't in charge. Ultimately, God was in charge. And God used the book of Obadiah to show them, I'm in charge, and you need to make sure your hope is in the right place. And that's essentially what 1 Peter chapter 3 is about. I started doing some research on hope. And you start looking at these studies, and over time, you see this this pervasive loss of hope in our culture. Back in 2009, this study reported that 26% of teens report feeling persistently sad and hopeless, and it's not going down. In 2019, 37%. Same study in 2022, 44%. And so this number is increasing rapidly. And another uh, study that I looked at, uh, it it charted two different types of people, people that are very happy and people that are not too happy. And you have a a drastic difference there around 2018 when the people that are very happy are no longer very happy and the people that are not too happy are suddenly uh, really not happy. And so there's a lot of information that you can go in and, and read this. Really interesting study. But that tells me this hope this loss of hope is not going anywhere people have no hope and everyone wants to blame this pandemic well 2020 is when all of this really happened this chart has nothing to do with 2020 this and you look at this study before this 2019 was a year before 2020 and there's an increasing amount of people that are feeling uh, sad and hopeless and so people have nothing to hope for uh, because they have, or they, they have no hope, because they have nothing to hope for. People have cast God out of everything. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with Christ. They don't want to love the way that Christ loved, and they don't experience hope because of that. And I hope that as you think about your life, I hope you have hope because of where you put your faith, where you put your hope in. If you have hope in this world, you're going to be part of that 44% statistic that was in 2022, where you're sad, where you're persistently hopeless, and you're just walking around like Eeyore all the time, and just you, you don't have anything to hope for. If you have hope in a risen Savior on the other hand, though, you're going to have something to live for. You're going to have true hope that the Bible talks about. 1 Peter chapter 4, we skip forward uh, one chapter there. Peter writes, For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join in on the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Sound familiar? This is happening. And... It was happening 2,000 years ago, and it's still happening now. The the hopeless participate in things like this because they don't have any reason not to. They don't put their hope in something that tells them not to do that and to, to be a part of these evil things. It gives them temporary pleasure in a hopeless world for them. We have a different hope, and that's why we don't participate in this. And I remember when I was in, in high school, and, and it was always one of those things. Why don't you come out? Why don't you, why don't you go party with us? And why don't, you, why don't you just have one drink? Why don't you just do this and do this? And that's exactly what Peter was talking about here. He says, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And so you start to think about the world, and the world never slanders you for what you don't do. Or for, the world never slanders you for what you do. Think about Christians. They, they give their money. They go and donate their time. They volunteer. And a lot of the major good things and the good uh, humanity things that are done in this world are because of Christians. The world doesn't slander you for what Christians do. The world slanders you for what Christians don't do and what they don't participate in. And that's what Peter's saying here. They slander you. But guess what? they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. They have no hope. But we do. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, as we, as we kind of wrap up here, he says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And the world looks at that and says, that's crazy. That, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to suffer? What's the purpose of suffering? But I think when you go back and, and you look at the, the context of this that Peter quoted earlier from, from Psalms, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The people who put their faith in God, those are the ones who have hope. The people who don't, they have no hope. They have no true hope. We endure suffering, and that this whole, uh, the last uh, part of chapter 3 is all about suffering for righteousness' sake. We suffer because we have true hope. We have something to hope for. Those who have hope, those are the ones who are going to endure. God has set his face against those who, who cause evil in this world and don't, don't uh, obey his will. So as we reflect on Obadiah's, as we wrap up, the Edomites thought they had it all figured out. They thought that they were They were awesome. They thought that they couldn't be destroyed, that they thought that they were um, high in those mountains and couldn't be touched, and that wasn't the case. Sometime around 400 B.C., the Nabateans came in and cast the Edomites out of their land, and they were destroyed. They were were cast into wandering. No one knows really ultimately what happened to the Edomites. Um, This area, again, was conquered and destroyed by Rome in 68 A.D., and uh, what I read was it was just completely destroyed other than a few of the ruins that you can see there in Petra. 2,500 years later, where we are now, we don't specifically have hope because of the destruction of the Edomites. Yes, you can read the story. Yes, you can directly see that God promised to deliver his people, and he did, and, and the Israelites were safe from the Edomites but we don't have ultimate hope because of the destruction of Edom. Edom was lost to history, but where is is God's people now? Israel was the descendant to Christ. Christ came to this earth, suffered, died, established his church, and now we're all a part of that church, an everlasting people. And so you've got two contrasting things. Edom, who there's no record of what happened to them. They're gone. They're lost from history. And then you look at Christians and Christ and all of his people and how much God has uh, promised to and the promise that God has made to his people. And so suffering for righteousness sake, you think about that. And that's Peter's main point in all of 1 Peter chapter 3. The Christian, the child of God is going to suffer for righteousness sake. Why? Because they have hope. Because they have something that's everlasting. (laughs) because they have some, a, a promise from God that God is going to protect his people. And in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3, our last verse this morning, he tells us what that hope is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's where our hope is. Christ died, and he brought us to God without that death without christ we have no hope because we are so far off from god but christ through his death brought us near to that and this morning i hope that you have that hope i hope that you know christ i hope that you can put your faith in him and realize that he's going to protect me he's going to provide for me and in in the long run i'm going to be with him in heaven if you're not a child of god though you don't know that hope this morning if you don't understand that hope, you don't understand who Christ is, the church here wants to help you understand that. The church here wants you to be saved and we'll do anything that we can to talk with you, visit with you about that. This morning, if you want to be baptized and and understand the same hope that, that Peter's talking about here, the church here stands ready and willing to do that. If the church can do anything for you this morning, won't you come while we stand and sing?